Hi, this is Bob Rosakis. You're listening to the Batman Family Reunion on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Welcome to the Batman Family Reunion, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Paul Ken, one of your hosts, and with me, as always, is my co-host and Bat Cousin, Sean M. Myers. What's new, Sean? I was just talking to Bat Cousin Killian, and he invited me to the Academy Awards ceremony in just a couple of days. He might win. to go, yeah. I've been devouring this catastic chocolate cake that Great Aunt Eartha made. It was just perfect. So this month, we welcome another first-time podcaster and my good friend of over 20 years, sitting right here in the Batcave with me, Dan Doherty. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the reunion. Hi, Paul. Hi, Sean. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Good to have you. What did you bring for us to eat, Dan? I left all the bat goodies at home. I'm having a dry and low-fat January, so <laughs> I'm at the, at the last belt hole of my bat belt. <laughs> so I, if I get any larger, the only thing that will fit will be my bat cape. <laughs> so I decided to dial it back a little bit so i'm sorry you'll have to do without oh, nothing at all not even kale no <laughs> you can have some fried kale maybe <laughs> dan knowing you're these i knew you were a bit more of a 1960s marvel kid but tell us what your history with the batman family did you read any of these did you have any of the favorite bat family members tell us your secret origin dan well my background is you're absolutely right i started reading collecting back in the mid 60s and as a small child i got most of my comics Back in the old days for a nickel, they were remaindered comics at the local deli. They have a display of about 100 comics all the time. They would turn over about once a week. Cool. And most had either half their cover torn off or their entire cover, but some still had their covers. And I still remember starting. I started out with as a DC guy when I was five or six years old. I still remember getting the Batman cover with the I Am Blind, if anyone mm. oh, remembers yeah. that. They might be yeah. Five, something like that, or one one ninety six. Forget the number, but I remember that, and I remember Clark Kent distinctly. Clark Kent being strapped to an electric chair, and he had to somehow figure out how, when it went on, it didn't kill him because he was Superman. So <laughs> those are the two two that are my first recollection of comic books early Ooh. early on. So I had a lot of comics. I started out as a DC, stayed that way for a while, but then when Thor came out and Fantastic Four and stuff, I sort of migrated over to Marvel. Marvel by the mid to late 60s in there and sort of stuck there. Didn't leave DC entirely, though. I mean, I kept with the major titles. So the Batman family comics were came out sort of when I was just starting college. So I was not a big reader of the Batman family. I do remember a lot of uh, what was coming out at the time, but I wasn't a Batman family guy, I'll say that. But there's a guy named Paul Kine who uh, I know <laughs> who has proselytized. He showed up at my house one day and he had a giant stack of them in one hand and a white shirt and a black tie. And and he wouldn't go away. And so I'm now a Bat Family fan. Uh, <laughs> so it's not worked out very well. Uh, I don't know whether to thank Paul or not for that. But I have read almost all of them now. And uh, they're all very interesting. I'm still collecting. I'm deep into collecting again. And so I've been trying to accumulate sort of what I consider the, sec the second tier mm -hmm. comics. Sort of the, not second tier quality, but just the off off title ones. Yeah. 
Old and stuff like that. House of Mystery and Strange Adventures and Batman Family and also Superman Family. So I've got plenty yep. of them now and I'm trying to get through them. But I've read all the Batman families that I have at this point. And they're all quite good. I like them a lot. Awesome. Uh, my favorite Bat Family character, I guess, would be Alfred. Oh, um, ooh. I don't think we've had Alfred as a favorite, have we? Uh, yeah, maybe that's not. That's great. Going back to the Marvel roots, he's far, far more interesting than Jarvis will ever be. <laughs> and and he's, he's silent. He's bumbling, umbrella-toting. He's got, if you watch the Gotham shows, he's got all that stuff going on where he's now sort of a mm -hmm. secret agent. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, the MI5, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's that's very exciting for me. And he's, you know, selfless and loyal. I like the character. Excellent. Um, yeah. Maybe he was like Steed in the BBC Avengers. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. Right. And then Witness Relocation brought him over to America as Alfred Pennyworth. That's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing, Dan. Sean, why don't you remind everybody what our show is all about? Batman Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978 and then rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin along with reprints before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Manbat, and even the Tales of Gotham City and Black Lightning. Both of your hosts collected and read these comics as they came out and are excited to share their love of this era at the Batman family reunion. Now, let's get into Detective Comics number 486, starring the Batman family. All right, so this issue, number 486, has a cover date of October, November 1979 and was released on July 5th, 1979, according to Mike's Amazing World. It is still a dollar with five stories. But the ads have returned, and we will get back into bad branding later on in the show. Our cover artist here in another box cover is Dick Giordano. What do you guys think? Uh, Dan, do you want to describe the cover for our listeners and then give us your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's an interesting cover. Again, you guys have covered in the past how the picture frame kind of restricts the amount of landscape that the artist has to work with. But I think he does a good job. Basically, it's dramatic. Luckily, in this issue, it's not Robin and Batgirl on motorcycle flying into a dinosaur's mouth or, or something so there's a lot more there's less there's less stuff going on the anticipation of this question i looked at it fairly closely i think it's very good i think there's probably a couple of heads the head looking over batman's shoulder and the one underneath his armpit probably could go away but, <laughs> but i don't know what they're doing it's just like every square inch of it is heads but the funny thing it's really not the artist's thing here i look and i say well just in case you don't know it's a batman comic book he's mentioned twice on the cover <laughs> he's on the cover and he's part of the logo if there's not enough yeah. business there i guess and there's a lot of text but that's again not the artist the artist i think is very good i like the flaming skeleton i like yeah. it a lot yeah. yeah no i like it too sean how about you so i do like this it's a boxed cover but i do like this i love the main image skeletons on fire we'll get into it i just think that's fantastic one thing i just noticed maybe two days ago and i really like this the batman detective comics logo is off center it's much more towards the left i think that really adds a lot. I think it adds a lot of real estate to the face of the cover. Like, I think you can kind of have more stuff happening there. I really like that. Getting really super nitpicky. The man underneath Batman's hand 
I don't like the fact that I guess it's supposed to be like a shadow from his hat because he kind of looks like he has a Beagle Boy's mask <laughs> he does. That, that he's wearing. I like the cover a lot. What do you think of the white inside his cape? I don't want to say my issue with box covers is often the sidebar is white. Whereas with this being so dark, I kind of think it blends in a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So I do think it does make a little bit more sense for the white of the inside of his cape. I agree with you. I think it goes really well with this. It doesn't pop as much as the red we had last issue. And I like how the Batman figure in his cape is like a lighter blue kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. a little bit different, I think. So that's neat. We will post the image of this cover as well as some additional pages from each of the stories in our family portrait gallery on the network's website, Paul, remind our listeners where that is. That is fireandwaterpodcast.com. So let's go ahead and jump into that first story, Sean. All right. The first story is Murder by Thunderbolt, starring Batman. It is 17 pages, written by Denny O'Neill, penciled by Don Newton. The inker is Dan Adkins, and it was later reprinted in Tales of the Batman, Don Newton hardcover from 2012. Batman in Murder by Thunderbolt. Our story, quite honestly probably has the best beginning of any story ever in Batman Family. A skydiving skeleton that catches fire when it plummets to the ground. Really, the story can't ever live up to that. <laughs> we discover that Maxi Zeus is the man to thank for that exciting scene because he made a vengeance vow. Oh, um, well, I mean, he threatened Reuben Rice for making a play to sit on the throne at Mount Olympus. While the goofy god is away on his vacation, as in a stay at Arkham. He tells his lawyer, confidant, underling, best friend. I don't know who he is. But he tells Mr. Calvin that the next person who crosses him will die in brimstone. Our story then goes to a laundromat where Batman plays rub-a-dub-dub, one man in a washing tub, to extract some info from the owner in regards to chemicals that were sold to someone in Maxie's mob. That someone being a Beverly Hillbillies hee-haw extra named Plowboy, who is throwing an I'm-taking-over-the-mob soiree. The second best scene of the issue happens when the waiter who is serving at the party whips off a full face mask to reveal the cow and pointy ears of the Batman. <laughs> The second worst moment of the story happens when Batman agrees to meet the plowboy at midnight at the Jackson's Pier barge to get some answers as to the flaming corpse case. Then, back in the Batcave, after Bruce tells Alfred of how the steaming skeleton trick was done while working on the Batmobile, the worst moment of the story happens when Bruce tells Alfred not to be dense and that he knows he's walking or swinging in on a bat rope or whirly batting his way into a trap. When we reach Jackson's Pier, we don't have to wait very long until we see Quentin Tarantino's favorite breakfast cereal, Haboom! Unfortunately for some boatists, some of the debris from the explosion has hit their craft. Luckily for some boatists, Batman is there to save them. Batman sees two fires and then makes a call to Mr. Calvin with the explanation of how he figured out some of the mysteries of the story and then back home, talks to Alfred and tells him the rest of the mysteries, which we will explain to you now. Dan, what did you think? Well, I liked it. 
I mean, it's sort of, to me, a throwback. He's a detective. Gives some action and everything. I like that Batman as a general concept. I'm not that big of a fan of the constant deep, deep, deep brooding of today. Right. I like this more so. So from the artistic perspective, I like this splash page. And here's why. As a Marvel kid, more so, Marvel splashes is were typically part of the story. Whereas... Golden Age DC especially had a splash page which sort of set the milieu up. It was like a second yeah. cover. It was like second a second cover. Yep. cover. Yep. And this is cool. It's a little jarring to me when I turn the page and I realize that, oh, now the story's starting. It has nothing to do with it. <laughs> I just read. I like both methods. Denny O'Neill's a giant, of course, and I liked him. I happen to know the Don Newton that when I was a kid in the 70s, he did a lot of covers for a magazine that I read religiously called Rocket Blast Comic Collector, well, RBCC. Mm. And he did a lot of the covers at the time. And I remember seeing his name on honestly a lot cool. it was always newton on the, and i said oh okay and then i see his name here and i wasn't that familiar with him as a comic book artist he was a fanzine artist when i knew him well he had a short career right because he dies at a very young age oh, within like four or five years from now uh, of this. i like the i mean there's a couple of things i could point out if you would like if, or, yeah, walk through. i liked it too i think it's a little over the top in terms of lots of confusing things we were wondering, Sean, if it was going to be a fair play mystery. I don't think it's a fair play mystery. <laughs> I don't know if I love Captain Entropy for introducing that to me or hating him. Because now I kind of do judge everything by that. And a lot of these are not fair. Yeah, it doesn't make it better or worse. Good overall. The art is fabulous, of course. I love the splash page, too. I think that's just a super cool thing. Then he's still trying to make Maxi Zeus a really big deal. He's got tentacles coming at him, even from Arkham. Kind of like the Kingpin would, right? From jail. All that's pretty neat. How about you? I think this story, and I think I'll say the phrase, right? The sum of its part is greater than the whole. I think there's a lot of great set pieces. It's very exciting. And it is funny because it does, this is Detective Comics, but it almost does feel more like an action story because of stuff that's happening. There's a lot of action beats in here. And we did basically recap each of the things. I mean, we can go through, quote unquote, quickly for Batman Family Reunion, which will be three hours. <laughs> I love the, I guess it's a reveal that on bottom of page two, we see the body flapping in the air. He's not pulling his parachute and then cord, yeah. flips around and we see that it's a skeleton inside the parachute, which is a pretty neat thing. And then you get the scene from the cover. This exact scene happens on the cover. Yeah. They don't do that. that they don't do that. So yeah. that's kind of, you know, what the devil does it mean? That guy with the pipe, he's really, Don Newton drew very distinctive people. You know, we've talked about that before. He's, all of them look different. They have different mm -hmm. clothes on. This guy's just wearing a hat and got a pipe and his eyes are big. What in the world is going on? So I, I think that's really cool. I will never get tired of flaming skeletons. I can't believe I'm not a collector of Ghost Rider because I just think that image is so fantastic. <laughs> the one scene in Arkham where you've got Maxi Zeus talking to his friend lawyer. I love how you got the Joker just walking by in the background. Yeah, He's like the most annoying extra. Like, you know, you know that woman in Doctor Strange at the wedding where she's like, wow. No, Joker is even worse than that. I'm not in this issue, but I have to get royalties. So I'm going to be walking this way. I'm going to be walking over here. I'm going to be looking right at the camera. This is before he became the all-crazy, all-killing, constantly trying to kill everyone in his midst <laughs> Joker that we see today. Today, they could not let him sit in, this, in the visitor's right. rating. You have to be in those, like, Silence of the Lambs things. He would be jacketed. 
and and, and he's frothing at the mouth, trying saying, "Why can't I kill some of these people?" He's walking around looking he's, for somebody to play checkers. Yeah, with. Exactly, <laughs> it's a totally different character. Bat cousins, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to the Isle of a Thousand Thrills in a couple of days, and I have read this, but there's a lot of stuff that I think I'm not understanding, and I don't know if I'm not paying attention enough. Does it ever say explicitly who is Mister Calvin? Is he just part of the mob? Does he have any kind of title? He's not Maxie's lawyer, right? Who's Mr. I thought he was his lawyer. Because who, who else would be visiting him across the little glass partition there? Yeah. I'm not sure it says anywhere, Sean. Okay, okay, good, okay. I okay. just made that assumption. A lot of times in comics, if I don't really understand, so like Mr. Calvin, I didn't understand who he was. But then a lot of times I'll read the panels backwards. When you read it forwards, you go with the flow of the story and you're just taken along. Versus when you read it backwards, then you're paying more attention. So I read it backwards and I still didn't get who Mr. Calvin specifically after all this time, I've learned something new. I did not know that you like to read comics backwards. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's also when you proofread something, you're supposed to read it backwards because when you're reading it, you know, the way you should, your mind takes over no, and you get, yeah. That makes sense. So we get to the scene of the laundromat. This laundromat, oh my God, this place is a filth hole. <laughs> who, would, who would do their laundry here? There's water on the floor. There's just crud. This is a cruddy laundromat. It's great place setting because I don't want to set foot in it. I can't imagine this place is clean. And you know how like you walk into a laundromat and you love that smell because like the fabric softener and stuff. Oh my God. I just think this smell is horrible in here. It's funny. It's got an old lady in there and she's leaning over and then the, on the wall, it's like, like you said, there's stuff on the floor, but there's a little sign. Help keep this place clean. <laughs> I'm like, that she, sign doesn't work. <laughs> she is a true Gothamite. My feeling is this elite, you do laundromat. It says 10 cents and 25 cents. I think maybe every other place in Gotham was like a dollar yes. to do the laundry. And this <laughs> was, ten, and that's why people are coming in here to do the laundry. The guy throws a grenade about to blow up his own store because he just throws a grenade at Batman. <laughs> Why? He has it hid behind a crate and <laughs> and he calls him a schmecko. I've never ever heard someone call that a schmecko. I like the woman. The woman who's just basically doing her laundry in the place. And no matter, first off, Batman comes in and she just keeps doing Yeah, she's not phased. So, he, she, so she, <laughs> she does that. And it's sort of surrealistic on page, I guess it's page six, uh, six, six yep. where he's fighting all around her and she's just, and then the thing explodes. <laughs> And she's standing right there. She keeps folding lawns. So, and then asks him, do you have a spare dime? I love it. So I love very, it. Uh... Bat cousins know I tend, tend to be egotistical, but I am going to toot my own horn here because in a Professor Paul kind of way, I did my research and this woman in the laundromat is the model that Batman based when he dresses up as the old drunk woman in The Dark Knight Returns. <laughs> You're laughing as if you didn't think I researched that. I don't know why you're laughing at my research, my thorough research. Plowboy? Can't you come up with a better name, Denny? Yeah. But got a great look. He's like a local yokel dandy because he's Southern and that even more rogue than rogue Southern accent. <laughs> I do love Don Newton. Now, at the time, I wasn't such a Don Newton fan because it kind of was too heavy. But I absolutely love him, especially when he took over Captain Marvel. However, his plowboy is really off. Story page seven, you see him standing at the end of the table. And then there's a close-up. And he kind of looks like a good-looking guy. But then in the very next panel, 
He looks horrible. He looks doofy. Yeah, it, it does look a little different. Those two people do not look like the same person. And I understand good lighting and everything, but that's <laughs> that's not lighting. At last month's reunion, I said about how we need to start saying some phrase when there's soil from only one part of town. We need to come up with something for when Batman decides to wear a full face mask over his cow with his ears and whip it off. Love it. I knew you'd love that. <laughs> And I, I love how Batman always takes the time to undress as the goons are threatening him. Yeah. Off the shirt together. How does he get the pants off? I can see getting a shirt or a jacket off. I can answer stripper pants. I can answer that right away. Like that? <laughs> yeah. I, I have them on right now. I'm ready to go. <laughs> so then we get some fights. I think the fights look great. Not that they're choreographed, but like you can follow the action and you can see what's going on. And then a third iteration of the plow boy says, and th this is kind of where it does get dumb. Plowboy's like, I'll meet you at midnight at the pier. <laughs> yeah. Why is Batman going along with Well, I guess technically we find out why Batman is going yeah, along with Batman's already to the figured end. it out. Out, I think yeah. I don't know that's where it becomes a little tough to although I do not like how he's mean to Alfred on page. I hate that that is so off model yeah that did not brand. feel yeah I don't recall Denny doing that before but he's just sort of snide yeah. to Alfred like yeah. don't be stupid Alfred I just think it's that word dense even if he said like don't be silly yeah don't be dense until he's warning Alfred's warning him yeah I do like the fact that we see Bruce doing something to the Batmobile and I like that at yeah. this point, they don't really explain it. Right. But you just see, I do think that's really well done. And I love how he's got the overalls. Yeah. yeah. But he doesn't get the bat costume dirty. <laughs> He can just take it off, but yeah. Well, you can't get grease out of that. You can't get to the cleaner. It's all exploded and everything else. You can't get grease on it. So then we do go to Jackson's Pier and we see Plowboy on the barge. And then we see the shadow of the Batmobile. And it is nice because it says midnight and a sleek auto glides noiselessly onto the pier, pauses for a moment, then continues. And then we get the 18th variation of the Plowboy down here at the corner of 11. And then kaboom, or I'm sorry, kachahoom. And I really like how it shows the Batmobile blowing up. I think that's, I think that really looks sharp. Yeah. And you wonder what did Batman do? But we never see Batman until later in the next page. We see how he slipped out because he, as Sean pointed out, they set it up nicely. I mean, it's a silly thing if you ask me that that's the way he'd avoid the trap by setting up a place where he could exit the Batmobile from the bottom. <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. I like it a lot. It seems like the Batmobile should have that feature <laughs> in any way. I mean, it would seem it didn't whip that together as a trap. Watching TV as a kid, I was promised more trap doors in my life than I have ever come across. So anytime we get a trap door, I'm happy yeah. to see it. Now, this next thing is a super, super obscure reference, but I'm going to say the two people who are on the boat. Yeah. This scene reminds me of, and I don't know the issue number, it's when the Flash went to 50 cents and Firestorm joined the backup because there were two kids in a boat in that first story. And that makes me think of that. Wow. And I love it. That is a deep cut. Well, yeah, it is a deep cut. Yeah. So some debris from Jackson's Pier hits these kids' boat. Were they stunned? They, they were not stunned. They are coherent. They're talking. <laughs> this is really, really heavy-handed. Batman saves them. He laments that because he saved the kids, he can't go after the killers. And then the woman or the girl says, but why did you bother? I thought you only cared about catching criminals. And he said, you're not alone in thinking that. I wish you were. So then 
It goes to Batman running on the beach. Now this is less obscure. This makes me think of that classic Batman stock art where he's running. Yeah, Neil beach. Adams. Yeah. On the puzzle can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then he calls, we find out, he calls Mr. Calvin. He tells him that he knows it's him because the plowboy had a shot at Batman. I had to give him the chance to be certain he wasn't behind the rice death. If plowboy had been, he wouldn't have wanted to ice Batman. Whoever planned the rice thing had to want Zeus's organization to survive. That's why the skeleton charade to scare rivals into feeling Zeus had some uncanny power. So Batman was an M, the greatest threat to Zeus's mob. No sense offing me if you don't want that mob to continue. And that's a whole bunch of like double negatives. So, yeah. so the skeleton, I understand. The skeleton, you want to make people think Zeus still has power from Arkham. I get that. I'm not sure I understand. No, the... it's, it's too complicated. I agree. Okay. So I wasted time by reading this backwards to try to reverse <laughs> yeah, I think so. this. Maybe it okay. makes more sense backwards than it does okay. forward. Or maybe both of you are dense. Maybe we're <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> that is a bold move. I'm not keeping a timestamp, but what? This is the third hour of this podcast so far. And he's like, it's, wow, that gauntlet has been thrown thrown down <laughs> now notice i didn't disagree with what you said <laughs> like, I, I never ever said you are wrong sir <laughs> i had a question what do you think about he's getting out of bed here who has a picture of their boss on their dress <laughs> what What's so that is, about? Uh, this, yeah, is the, this is the other thing I was going to bring up because later on, this is Batman. So the plowboy is out, but you, without Maxi Zeus, you're nothing. And he says, you're here. Mr. Calvin says, well, you're wrong. I did it because, because Mr. Zeus was kind to me. I, I love him. Right. Is this supposed to be some kind of gay and not even gay coding because he's saying it. And I don't want to erase bisexuality, but there's also a poster of a bikini girl on the wall. And especially in the 70s, you definitely had that killer homosexual night hawks and cruising and all of that. So I don't know if they were going for that. Look, we're edgy like Marvel is. I don't know if that was that. If they did, it was way too understated, I think. I mean, you know, yeah. I didn't read it like that, but you never know, right? What's in people's heads, I guess. I do like how this is staged because it's very blue light, nighttime blue light. So I like that. And the word balloons are outlined like a pink magenta kind of color. So that makes those pop. Also, Bat Cousins, I'll let you in on a secret. That quote unquote research I did about the Dark Knight, that wasn't true. But this next part is true. There's a telephone number on the telephone. And this morning I called that number on the <laughs> telephone and it's just some weird voicemail. I guess it's some business voicemail. And then I got scared and I hung up. So, <laughs> so, so I, I didn't, I didn't leave a message, but honestly, I did call that number. That's too funny. There is a real number. It's not five, five, five or something. I don't know if it's my eyes or the newsprint. I couldn't read what number it was. So I had to take a photo on my iPhone and then zoom in on it to see what that <laughs> number was. Now that I'm thinking, maybe since like the cover was, I thought was DB instead of DB. So maybe I got a couple of numbers wrong, but okay. <laughs> but I tried. Anyway, I do like how this is staged with Mr. Calvin. You see him getting out of bed. He's taking off his pajamas. He's getting dressed. He's going for his gun. And then you flip the page and then he's going down the steps. And now all of that, I like that. I really like because it's motion. And I think that's cool. I really. And then, of course, at the end of the page, Batman's just standing there waiting for him. So I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good Batman action there. So at the end, you find out that Plowboy died because some debris also hit his barge. Because there was a what I think is supposed to be like an oil tanker can, like an oil can 
of yeah. sulfuric acid. And I think it's supposed to be because of the intense heat, it's supposed to be dented and melted. But I just think it kind of either looks like Santa's sack. I think it looks like a sack, like a <laughs> potato sack or something. I don't get that it's oil. Can it looks like a bag with a Halloween <laughs> arm of a step. And again, I love Don Newton, but I just don't like the way that, I guess it's supposed to be a dented can. That's what I thought it was, I guess. I didn't read so much into it, I guess. <laughs> you have to find out whether sulfuric acid could be inside a can. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, what's, maybe it's, it's like a universal solvent. It's yeah. a universal oh, solvent. <laughs> <laughs> Avengers 87, I think. <laughs> oh, heavens. All right, now we're going to move on. We're, let's move on to the Bat Timeline. So in this segment, we are going to take a look at the, all the other titles that were published this month and what the rest of the Batman family was doing. As always, thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. This, again, is the month of July 1979. And we'll start off with the Bat books. And in Batman number 316, we get an awesome cover. Dick Giordano again. We've yeah. got Batman and Robin facing off against crazy quilt yeah you gotta love that yeah i think that's such a great cover it like, is really a good special mm -hmm. guest star robin so this is len ween bringing robin back into the title again we're still a year away from the new teen titans it's really a, a great cover they're swinging in from opposite sides crazy quilt is hitting them with different colored blasts so robin gets a blue blast and batman gets an orange blast yeah i think this cover is really sharp the next one we're going to talk about is the brave and the bold number 155 and the story is fugitive from two worlds and it is the Batman and Green Lantern. Batman is in a spaceship with an alien by his side. And he says, back off, GL. This alien's my prisoner. And GL is saying, no way, Batman. He's going to face the Guardian's justice. The cover tag is a battle in the stars. The prize, the fugitive from two worlds. Good Jim Apparel cover. It's weird with Batman in space. There's was... so many of those later ones that are, there's Batman and Commandy. Yeah. There's Batman and the Unknown Soldier. Yeah. It was a bit much. Crazy right? stuff, yeah. No, no, no. I'll tell you one thing. When there was a team-up title, I want it to be the oddest team-up pairing Possible. I hate it, especially for like anniversary issues where it's Batman and Superman. I hate that. No, I want Ma Kent and the Demon. I <laughs> want the oddest, weirdest team up that actually makes no sense whatsoever. That's the kind of team up I want in team up books. I love it when it's super odd and bizarre. The next title is super very near and dear to me. No surprise. I am holding it up in my hands right now. It is DC Special Series number 19. Secret Origins of Superheroes, an absolute fantastic, beautiful cover. I'm assuming by Dick Giordano. Dick Giordano, I think there's Ross Andrew. Oh, okay, okay. So it's Superman and Batman and they're shoulder to shoulder. And on their shoulders, they have Wonder Woman. And behind her are Elongated Man, Robin, Supergirl, Aquaman, Hawkman. I love this digest. I remember seeing it on the newsstand. Absolutely love it. And so I don't know whether to say it now or a little bit later, but because Detective is bi-monthly, last month was the first issue of Gust of DC Blue Ribbon Digest number one with Superman. They always wanted to have two digests out at a time, so I love DC for that. But the reason we're talking about this now is because one of the origins is Robin in the origin of Robin. And it's not just a reprint of the original Robin story. It's much, much later from the 60s that kind of has the origin at the front and then another connecting story after that so it's very very good i love it next up we've got a famous issue justice league number 171 which has the death of mr terrific on the satellite it's got the jla and jsa are back together again it's a jerry conway dick dylan masterpiece 
It's great cover. You got the body on the slab and the satellite and the flash saying that this piece of metal holds the clue to the identity of his murderer. And Batman and the Huntress have to figure out the mystery. Just a great story. At the time, I didn't know who Mr. Terrific was. I love all of the Justice League, Justice Society team-ups. They're fantastic. Yep. Our next one is Super Friends number 25, and it is Puppets of the Overlord, starring, of course, Batman and Robin. And this is a great cover. The Overlord has puppet marionettes of the Super Friends, and he's making them fight each other. Poor Jaina is in pieces. I know. So I think that's funny sad. that she's falling apart at the bottom. It's just a toy. It's not the real Super Friends. The Super Friends haven't been turned into them. <laughs> and our last Bat title this month is, of course, World's Finest Comics. Yet another dollar comic. Rich Buckler cover, where Superman and Batman are trying to stop a mob from running over the bridge. It says, has Gotham gone crazy invading Metropolis? So all the people from Gotham are running across the bridge. And he says, out of the way, heroes, even you can't stop 8 million people. <laughs> the bridge would fall over <laughs> all 8 million came at the same time. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's a great Rich Buckler cover. And you got, of course, besides the Superman Batman story, you've got a... Again, this is a decreased page count now in the dollar comics. There are only four stories, but you've got a team up of Green Arrow and Hawkman and then a Black Lightning story who will be coming our way in a few issues and then Captain Marvel as well. Dan, do you want to go over your pull list? The ones that I was really into at the time, I was into Marvel 2 and 1 a lot because Thing is probably my favorite Marvel character. That's just a great cover. I think John Byrne is a pencil. I guess yep. it's earlier Byrne. Looks more like to me... Like a different artist. It's I guess because it's Terry Austin Inks. So that that's one of my favorite books. And this is the great Project Pegasus storyline yes, too, yes. which is terrific. It's, and it's got George Perez inside art. Right. It's Ooh. got like I think it's four or five issues. Yeah. I forget. Great story. I read that when it came out. I know that. I think I got the Alice Cooper off the stands. Oh, oh really? Really? Yeah. I recall. I don't have it anymore, but I recall being disappointed. <laughs> I do recall that. But oh. it was so maybe because it just wasn't real enough. Cover's weird. It's yeah. Tom Sutton. It's this is Marvel premiere number fifty, starring Alice Cooper. Alice's first comic book appearance. Yeah. And Thomas Sutton used to do he used to do real weird early horror, horror, horror stuff. stuff. Yep. So he's yep. perfect for that. Yeah. Those are off the top. You don't realize until you go to this site just how many I know you guys bring it up every how many Richie Rich and, and <laughs> And I, when I was around 10 and 11, I embarrassed to say that I used to get these. No embarrassment. No way. So when I used to have my snow shoveling money and I would go to town. And, on Richie Rich. On Richie Rich. Because you could read them and they were fun. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Millions and billions. And millions and billions and zillions. Richie Rich. So why don't we talk about Richie Rich now? Because we're talking about it. But he's got. 14. 14, 14 comics. <laughs> including a digest. Including a digest. Profits. <laughs> Jackpots. Jackpots, millions, billions, money world, zillions. I like that yeah. one. That's unbelievable. When I went to the newsstand as a kid, I was not necessarily searching out Richie Rich. But if I had money and I couldn't get any DC, couldn't get any Marvel, Richie Rich probably was my third. Probably because he was crowding everything else out on the newsstand there. I enjoyed him. Like a digest, I, I like it. Especially like if it was a variety. There's nothing wrong with that. No no shame, no embarrassment. All right. So what else, what else did you have, Sean? So my first choice is Action Comics number 500. Yeah, I can't not have that. Well, actually, I don't have that. Although, literally, so half an hour before we started recording, I went on eBay and I did buy my copy of <laughs> You're afraid Comics we were going to drive the price up? <laughs> yes, yes. Every time we talk about stuff, I always want to make sure I get it first. Maybe because the story is 64 pages, but I looked on Mike's Amazing World. The story has never been reprinted anywhere. 
And I get a lot of reprint stuff, best ofs and that kind of stuff. And I, yeah, I'm surprised that story has never been reprinted. I love the cover for this. It's got, got this pink surprint with this infinity cover. Los Andrews, Superman, Supergirl, and Lois Lane. Just really, it's a classic comic book. If you're a fan of the network, you probably heard it elsewhere. But this was originally supposed to be a treasury, right? Yep. And then they printed it as Action 500. Yeah, so I'm I'm eager to a week or so to, to read that. My next choice is no surprise, of course, is DC Special Series number eight. 18, which is the companion to the other digest we talked about. But this is Sergeant Rock's prize battle tales. Now, I'll be honest, at the time, I could have looked at this and it could have been one cent and I probably wouldn't have bought it because it was Sergeant Rock and I didn't care. But when I decided to get all the digests, I got this. And I find out that I like Sergeant Rock Tales. I like all of those. So that's that's cool. My next one is a fantastic pick. It's Fun and Games Magazine number two. I that on my list from too. From Marvel. Absolutely, absolutely love it. So I recently, for Christmas, got the trade paperback that yep. reprints all these. And I was starting to do it. Some of the mazes. I'm like, I can't do these mazes. I'm a grown man. I can't do the mazes. <laughs> I actually had the first issue of this and it's neat because the first issue is a maze with the Marvel heads, like the corner box heads. And then the cool thing is they have a code that had the Marvel corner box heads. So Storm was R and Spider-Man yeah. was B. And so, yeah, so that was really neat. Yeah. I liked that. I liked Fun and Games Magazine. I'm in the course of going back and getting all of them. I have, I think like the first eight, eight or nine. So I'm going to get- uh, I don't know how many are in this trade paper bag. I'd have to look and I'll tell you, but I, I got it. Somebody gave it to me for Christmas and it did a few before we went away and it's pretty neat. I have that as well. I'm almost positive they're not reprinted complete issue one through. They put all the covers at the front and right. then there's just a whole bunch of puzzles. I think, it, I think they just- I don't know why the they did it that yeah, way. Maybe because yeah. some of the puzzles they didn't want to include for some reason. I don't could, know. Yeah. My next one is Willing It Into Action, Spider-Woman 19, guest starring Werewolf by Night, The Enforcer Strikes. And this is another great cover because like the Enforcer is shooting at Spider-Woman and it's just <laughs> above her head. The, the next one, I'm not sure if I've ever talked about on here, but it's, it's a dollar comic called Time Warp. Oh! And it's all science fiction stories. The thing about Time Warp, I love Time Warp. I am not exaggerating when I say this. Time Warp is my all-time favorite comic logo ever. It is a great logo. There is such a sense of motion to this. A lot of times we talk about the comic book panels being like a movie or a sense of motion. Oh my god, just the way it's twisting. Oh my god, I love that logo. I think it only ran for five issues. I think I have three of them. And of course, it's an anthology, so there's always going to be stories you like, stories you didn't like, but that's neat. Mike Kaluta cover. Yeah. I think he did if covers you, on all five. I'm not sure, but... If you don't know the Time Warp logo, look it up because it looks fantastic. I love it, love it, love it. Agree. My last choice is What If, number 17. Now, technically, I have this because I have all those collected editions like we talked about, but this is What If Ghost Rider, Spider-Woman, and Captain Marvel were villains and man this cover they're going to town on poor i guess manhattan or new york city or whatever because <laughs> man they they're literally tearing up the town <laughs> you know i had that on my list but the problem with this all these stories are real 
downers. I think a lot of these stories had some editorial directions, like make sure that the ending isn't too happy because we want them to like the main Marvel universe. And not yeah. <laughs> so this will be very late for you guys, but just today when we're recording it, Shag released his Once Upon a Geek, where he talks about two issues of what if, and it's what if Uncle Ben had lived, and the other one, what if Rogue stole the power of Thor. They talk about this, the downer endings, but I totally can understand that. You certainly had deaths in comic books like Gwen Stacy and things like that, but they were like monumental events but here in what if literally anything could happen so i understand why there was such a quote-unquote high body count or a downer i don't want to say you couldn't do that in the regular main count, but certainly you can't kill spider-man yeah. you can't kill superman i guess maybe you can now but back then you couldn't it was much more status quo so to have this book where you kind of could do anything to any of the characters, I understand why there's so many downbeat. Yeah, I think you have to have a twist sort of ending. Otherwise, it's almost the what if becomes creating an alternate universe. It's like what if, you know, whatever the what if is... Conan is in the 20th century. Well, yeah, yeah. Conan is in the 20th. No, he's got to somehow. But they did that a lot because they made that Conan story that actually happened, you know, because he went back right. in time. And I don't know. I, I like the what ifs pinned on a certain moment. What if Spider-Man didn't swing away and join the Fantastic Four? Right. Right. As opposed to completely alternate worlds. Okay. To me, when I think alternate Earths, I think the DC setup was vastly better than the multiple Earths that Marvel had. But I love the concept of what if being a different, like a Marvel thing, because there were, there were pivotal events. Right. And when a pivotal event happened to go a different way, but like you watch the TV show of what if, and I haven't watched the second season yet, it's just alternate realities. Right. There's no pivotal That's moment. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's just another, a whole other character. Yeah, practice. exactly. And so to me, that's the difference between a what, a what if? if and an alternate Earth. Okay. To me. You like an inflection point. I like both kinds, but for some reason, I like the DC multiple Earths better. And I like the what if Marvel inflection point better. That's just my personal point of view. I definitely have to stick up for the Watcher because there's not a lot of bald, good superhero. <laughs> superhero characters or bad guys so between professor x and the watcher that's kind of all i have to cosplay yeah. so. well speaking of bald in amazing spider-man 197 you've got kingpin on the cover about this <laughs> yeah but that's smash spider-man with a desk again it's the marvel from keith pollard run up to 200 next on my list here's an interesting one sean avengers annual number nine and what's neat about this one is you have rare interior and cover art by Don Newton, okay? Oh. He didn't do a ton of Marvel stuff, but you can see his style on the cover by looking at Makes Amazing World, and he did do the interiors as well, written by Bill Mantlo. I don't remember the story. It says, The Power of Arsenal, an all-new 30-page epic. Got the floating heads on the side, which is always good. And this big giant guy carrying the beast and Hawkeye. You know, I just thought that was neat that we had Don Newton doing a Marvel annual, no less. In The Flash 278, he is still working through the death of Iris. He is taking on both Captain Boomerang and Heat Wave. Pretty good cover by Dick Giordano. Then the last one I have is Superboy and the Legion number 256. This is the issue where Brainiac 5 goes crazy. Jerry Conway, the art's really good in this, got Joe Staten. So this is a time period in between the two times when Paul Levitz wrote it. The first time when he was just so-so, and then the classic run is maybe 20 issues from now. And so that's my list. And we already talked about Richie Rich. That is it. You ready to move on, Sean? Yes. All right, let's move on to the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea Contract. Starring the Human Target, a nine-pager by, once again, Len Wein and Jake Giordano. As far as I know, has not been reprinted. 
As usual for human target stories, we open in media res as a scuba diving Christopher Chance is being targeted for lunch by a shark. How did we get to this point? Well, rev up the Len Wein flashback machine. <laughs> a few days ago, Chance was contacted by Judy Dorrance. That's right. One of the sea devils. Seems somebody had it in for her hubby, Dane, who is the leader of said group, and toppled the mast of a sunken ship down on him, landing him in the hospital. They had been trying to find their friend and fellow diver, Hank Bonner, who had disappeared. Judy wants Chance to take her husband's place to find Hank and whoever tried to kill Dane. Cue the makeup and training montage, and the next thing you know, Chance is accompanying Judy on another boat trip out to the wreck with two other friends. Of course, we know by the logic of eight-page mystery stories, one of these two guys must be the bad guy since they're the only two other characters in the story. That night, Chance goes for a solo dive, which is always a good idea, I'm sure, when you're a scuba diver, to check out the wreck while everybody's asleep. We step out of the flashback machine right as Chance bonks the nose of the shark and stuns him in a way that would make Brett Young proud. While exploring the wreck, he finds a treasure chest, shocker number one. The chest also contains the body of his friend Hank, shocker number two. And then he is attacked by one of the friends, shocker number three. And finally, the bad guy gets eaten by said shark, shocker number four. The end. <laughs> so guys, what do you think? Dan, you want to start us off? What you thought of Human Target? Well, I, I liked it. Mm -hmm. I think you guys are probably a little younger than I am. I saw Jaws in the theater when it came out. <laughs> and every 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old kid in the country knew that if you're attacked by a shark, you hit them on the nose. <laughs> Believe me. And that's why you look at this and go, well, that'll work. That'll definitely work. So you had to know that. First off, the Dick Giordano. I met him, I think, in 1976. Oh, cool. Wow. Marvel convention in New York. Back in the day, I sound like an old man, but back in the day, <laughs> you'd go to a convention and there'd be you know, a sea of tables and there weren't even long boxes or short boxes. There's, they didn't exist yet. Stacks, right? Stacks of comic books. And mm -hmm. artists would rent a table or sometimes they'd get a free table and they would sit there in the same room as all the comic books, maybe every 12th table be an artist. And he was sitting there. And I think if I recall correctly, he was sitting with Herb Trimp. Mm. Like they bought a table together, I guess, mm -hmm. or something for 50 or 60 bucks. And he had a stack of artwork and I talked to him and, I, and he was impressed because I came up to him and I said, I saw a piece that you signed in an advertisement for a speedboat. And I'll remember to this day, because, wow. oh my God, you, were, you you saw that? It was in a sporting magazine or something. And he drew an illustration. And I recognized his wow, name. Wow, cool. So he was very happy to meet. So I was 16 years old. Nice man. Got a very nice impression from him. Back in the day, you could buy as much of this, this artwork as you wanted, the original artwork. For his pages, if it were Batman, it would might be, with Batman in a scene, it might be 30 bucks. For, for human target, they would be 12, 15 bucks a page. But oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and a cover might be a hundred. So I like the story. I, I mean, I wasn't that familiar with the human target. He was in action or something. He was in action that. before this. Yeah. yeah. I remember that a little bit, but we only had what, Sean? 12 appearances pre crisis? Let me check my sheet. <laughs> 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. 21, although one is crisis. So he's probably just like in a panel. 20 stories. 20, yeah. 
Yeah. So I have a good excuse anyway, but he, he's a good character. He sort of reminds me, was there an, a character like him in Brave and Bold or Show? Well, there was Nemesis, uh, who you're thinking. Well, he also had a couple Early, no, but early. Yeah, the DC explosion. He did have a backup in the Brave and the Bold. It lasted for two issues, oh, okay. 143 okay. and 144. The Cat and the Canary contract and the Symphony for the Devil. Also, Bat Cousins, this is not from my memory. I just happen to have it hanging up on my wall from the first time I talked about <laughs> Human Target. And I've been too lazy to take it down. I'm not that great. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> but I, I, I like the character. I mean, it's a he's a super rich guy who yeah. can also do everything. Uh, everything. <laughs> yeah, he's scuba yeah. diving. He's he's yeah. as powerful as Batman, basically. But he doesn't <laughs> wear a costume. But, you know. but he has a pipe, and he looks cool. He yeah. looks like we he, thought. Uh, he, we thought last month we were talking about. It, we thought he could be played by George Clooney. Or he's Tony Stark without the armor, right? <laughs> he doesn't need the armor. But at any rate, I like the character and I like the story. It was it was simple and what are you saying? In, in a few pages like that, it's you can't it, do it, much. It, no. But but it's it's interesting. There's action. There's shark action. Yeah. When I was a kid, I wouldn't have caught on the Sea Devils yeah, reference. I, a few years ago, I read all the Sea Devils that were in the showcase edition of the Sea Devils. They're fun stories. They're very 50s and early 60s DC. They're very repetitive. But to see them semi-show up here understated was really a neat thing. And he was part of the Forgotten Heroes. Yes, he was. That were in DC Comics Presents. Yeah. Yep. Bat Cousins, you know I love Human Target. I absolutely love Human Target. It's fantastic. And this Detective Comics is where Batman Family, that's where I first learned about Human Target. It is a pure and natural love, I will say. And again, I love these stories. And they kind of are, I don't want to say repetitive, but they definitely have, you know, open up with action, have the flashback, we pick back up. And they're all like eight. I don't even know if they were over 12 pages. Anyway, however, the guy in the chest, and again, I love skeletons, but the guy in the chest is a skeleton already? <laughs> maybe i can no prize it by maybe there was like a piranha swimming by <laughs> and ate all the flesh and i understand like the guy was in the hospital for a while it takes a while to go through training i can't believe that all he would have been decomposed he was in a bag of sulfuric acid I think. <laughs> he, may, he may have been yeah <laughs> But however, I will admit, when you open up the treasure chest and you see that image, like that's a fantastic image. Yeah, it's great. I mean, the art is beautiful. I love Dick Giordano when he inks himself, pencils and inks. I just think it's great. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think we have much more to say about this one. Ready to move on to Batgirl? Okay. We are going to move on to the Batgirl story, which is called Crime Calls Killer Moth. And it's eight pages written by Jack C. Harris, penciled by Don Heck. Inked by Joe Gila, later reprinted in Batgirl, the Bronze Age Omnibus, Volume 2 Hardcover, 2019. Batgirl in Crime Calls, Killer Moth. Killer Moth is apparently no fan of print media, as our splash page shows him furious at the headline detailing their last encounter, which happened in Batman 311, and worth a read on DC Universe Infinite. He goes on about making a comeback to being Crime's protector? Um, okay. <laughs> And then our scene switches to Barbara Gordon's DC office. Now, that's Washington, DC, not DC Comics office, where the winner of some candy bar or breakfast cereal contest probably comes in and tells her that his father was killed back in Gotham and that he came to see her because the police haven't contacted him or his mother about it. After putting him up in a hotel, Batgirl then tries to stop a bank heist, but is interrupted by Killer Moth, the crime protector. <laughs> Talking to Donnie Halsey, the contest kid, gives Batgirl the next clue that she needs to solve this case. 
Donnie tells her that his dad used to work for an alias that Killer Moth, the crime protector, used to use. We see that the bank robbers that Killer Moth, the crime protector, saved from the bank heist are now being held prisoner by him. And during his reverie, we see how Killer Moth, the crime protector, created his moth signal by hiring people who had no idea who he was or what they were creating for him and then killing him. The moth signal that he was responding to was in fact a trap set for him by Batgirl. And that's how she stopped Killer Moth, the crime protector. What did you guys think? Well, um, <laughs> first off, the killer moth does not put fear in yeah. me. I don't under, quite understand how he is able to attract all the criminals, etc. But now I got the impression that both of you are not Don Heck fans. I am a well, Don you, but, Heck. I'm, but you like the old Avengers and no, Thor stuff, right? Exactly. And I like Don Heck. I think that he's got a good anchor here, for one thing. Don Heck can be very rough if he doesn't. Yeah, have a great yeah I agree. Yeah, yeah, His I stuff agree. in this particular issue is pretty good. He's got a lot of good stuff. I think on page seven, the montage little thing. I mean, there are some issues. I mean, yeah, that's really good. Are, I like that too. Yeah, the, with a montage where he's, mm-hmm. you know, do, creating his stuff and all. I'm not quite sure why there are three feet. There's supposed to be two guys in a cell. I don't understand got, that. He's got three feet. Why? Why are they barefoot? Why are they? I barefoot? think the other guy's foot is just out of panel. Yeah, but uh, well, let's uh, see. That's a right foot, exactly, and a left foot, and then a and right, and then another right foot. So, so the other left foot's over here, maybe. Yeah. So what's the purpose of that? I didn't understand why they are barefoot. Yeah, I, I take their <laughs> usually their shoelaces off of them, but not their shoes and their socks. Now again, maybe keeping with the theme, I referenced Quentin Tarantino earlier. Maybe Killer Moth has a foot fetish thing going on. <laughs> And he makes them take them off. Maybe they don't wear socks. But I had a question for you, Bat Fiends. Where is Gotham City? Because it says on the first splash page that the Killer Moth traveled hundreds of miles from Gotham to Washington. So mm-hmm. I is Gotham supposed to be a for New York City? Well, no, that's what I, I always thought. Gotham is supposed to be like New York City, but in DC Universe, right? There's New York, there's Gotham, there's Metropolis, you know, there's lots of cities. There's just more people in DC Universe, I always think. But I always go by the old amazing world of DC Comics explanation, probably because I live in South Jersey. I like Gotham cities in South Jersey. I think yeah. Metropolis is like replaces Wilmington and Delaware. And New York is still up in New York. Washington is only 150 miles away. He so, seems, but if you think it's New York, then it's a couple hundred miles. Okay. Well, is that, Sean, do you feel the same? Sean, your your mileage may be different. I think the problem is, I really think DC started out where I do think Metropolis is supposed to be New York City. I absolutely think that you have Gotham City, which then probably would be in Jersey. Especially for back then, you know, like all the jokes about how kind of like bad Jersey is. I think the problem is then DC probably started using New York as a place. Marvel is real. So like New York is New York and that that makes sense. I think with DC, I think Metropolis is New York, but then somewhere later they also had New York. So I think that created the problem. Well, the world's finest cover earlier had all the people from Gotham running to New York. Across a bridge. Across a bridge. In my mind, that's the Delaware Memorial Bridge, right from (laughs) Delaware into South Jersey. (laughs) That must be fairly close. That works in my world. What I would do is write a letter to DC Comics saying you don't (laughs) understand this, and they will do a 12-issue miniseries about the crisis on geography Earth. (laughs) My last comment about this is Batgirl beats him with a shoe. (laughs) 
<laughs> not a batarang or fucking pull anything out of her belt. Whose shoe is it? I, I missed that. I don't know. One of the guys with bare feet. I don't know. She's, she's like it's ab- not hers. She's like an abuela. <laughs> I don't know, but she and knocks him out. So he's quite the imposing he, character. He is not he, an imposing he, character. Yeah. You know, we made a lot of fun on this podcast about Killer Moth, that's for sure. But, but I like kill, like the, those two early appearances. They're like hysterical. The they're gun. I, I do like that a lot. And Killer Moth aficionados, did he start off as the quote unquote crime protector? Is this just something they introduced for this one? The other thing too is Killer Moth is saying she, Batgirl, couldn't have known I was going to try to rescue the Bolton the other night but somehow she was there that's in batman 311 i did read that story that story's better but even then i still didn't get the bolton connection from that issue so i don't know i like killer moth i think he's fun but i didn't, I didn't think it was was a good outing of killer moth i did not off get moth. the storyline with the kid the kid's dad was killed but nobody's paying attention so he goes to his congresswoman i don't know i didn't care for it yeah best parts to me i have written on my notes page four mothmobile Wow. <laughs> and then I have page five, Moth Signal. Wow. <laughs> those were the notes I had. Again, I don't want to fixate on the goop gun. The goop gun is Batman Family 10, where it's him and Batgirl and Batwoman and Cavalier. I think it's 10 or 11. They're behind me. I don't, I'd have to look. But there, I love the way the goop gun looked in that issue. Yeah, like yeah, the, yeah. The goopiness actually looks great. But here, it just looks, I don't even know if it looks like snot or clouds or bob Rizak, when he was writing killer moth in those issues he pulled it off he was yeah. ostentatious and goofy and it was an entertaining story this wasn't terribly entertaining to my mind to have killer moth because he is kind of just a doofus right so well, she traps him by sneaking she's sitting in the back seat here in a costume <laughs> And then whips it off, and yeah. he's not very bright. No, he's not very bright. I do like how he goes, there's not much time left. Are you one of the Bolton family? Yes. And she's like, no, you might just say, I belong to the Batman family. I'm like, yay! We have a title! <laughs> That was the best part of the story. I agree with that. But we have no idea where the shoe came from. (laughs) And you are fixated on that shoe, my friend. Because there's a signal inside the shoe, it says. That's if you read it says and the the signal in in the shoe shoe will lead us to your hideout, which will get the rest of the story. Was that his father? The kid's father, because he was a shoe mender? Is I I don't know. Back cousins, if you love this story, if this is your favorite story, tell us in the comments. Tell us why we're wrong for making fun of it and we'll think about it <laughs> we will read your comment all right let's okay on. now we have the return yeah i'm so happy the return of bat branding listeners with the return of ads to detective comics we will be taking a look at a few of these again kick us off paul so the first one inside the front cover states that we have a 23rd century odyssey now star trek the motion picture coming this christmas to a theater near you it's a great shot of the enterprise with the cast below the Enterprise, little headshots of them. I was very excited about this. I had just started getting to Star Trek, so that's worthy of note. Remember, this is 1979 now, so Christmas of 79 was when that movie came out. So I do, I would say I like Star Trek. I've I've never seen the original episode. I've never seen Next Generation. I came on board with the Chris Pine. Oh, okay. That version, I love that version. I watched the new shows on Paramount+. Plus. I've liked those a lot. Yeah, I like the new shows too. Technically, I did see is it star trek 4 with the whales yes so i saw that one and i i did like that one i guess i probably should go back and watch the but i've heard the first star trek motion picture isn't great. very slow apparently they spend like 10 minutes just looking at the ship is that yeah. true 
Yeah. Very slow. <laughs> okay. It's very slow. But it was a big deal at the time. How about you? Are you, I don't know, are you much of a Star Trek fan? Yeah. I, 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 Star Trek was very big to me. Very you strike important. me as an original series yes, guy. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and the new about. one's no good. Yeah. I, um, I, I, but, yeah. One, of those, yeah. one of those guys. <laughs> um, no, but, I, I like them all. I like them all. I, just, I don't care. I got all the books and comics. Maybe I can't judge because I've never watched the, oh, especially Strange New Worlds. Oh my God, I love that. All right, let's move on. The next one is Brute Stripe Gum. You've got a pretty kitty drawn ad here. Uh, we always like the ones that look like you could have done it when you were a 10-year-old kid. Fruit Strike Gum fans? Very, very topical. They just came out the other day. Yeah. So they're not making this gum anymore. Starting no, now. Very topical. Yeah. I do, I, and I missed the ad when I was reading the book because I read it about a week ago. But they just came out and said, no more Fruit Strike. It's a poor man's juicy fruit is what it is. <laughs> so I love Fruit Strike Zebra. I think it's a fantastic mascot. The look of the gum is fantastic. This is not a hot take from Sean. This is not, you know, something I created. The problem with Fruit Stripe is it literally lasts 0. 0.023 seconds. Mm -hmm. Like you put it in your mouth, it tastes phenomenal. And then four chews later it's nothing How about that's that? the problem but i mean it still doesn't stop you from getting fruit strike you just know what you're gonna you know you're gonna enjoy it for like two seconds and that's it but i love for especially the way it looks everything it smells right now literally my mouth is watering the grand prize in this contest is a trip for four to walt disney world this is a thousand boxes of fruit strike oh my god a thousand <laughs> boxes? your mom would that not like that 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 will last you a minute. It says twenty <laughs> packs per box, so that's twenty thousand packs oh of gum. Like I said, that flavor will last you for one minute. A <laughs> hundred thousand sticks of gum. That's fourth prize. <laughs> that's fourth prize. I I would like that over the bike. <laughs> that shows how cheap the gum is. They can give you a thousand. Oh, maybe they just give boxes out. There's to one a box there, a thousand people. people. Oh, a thousand people. That would make more sense, but it's not clear. I think I would I, I think I'd get an attorney. I think there's a thousand fourth prize winners. Okay. I'm not so bad then. <laughs> It says fourth prize. It doesn't say fourth prizes. <laughs> See, that's that's a proofreader right there. He's very detail-oriented. <laughs> Without going to the back cave, so we always love letter pages. I especially love it when there's two full pages yeah. of letter pages. Absolutely fantastic. Wonderful. As always, we are inviting Mark Ryan, Edward B. Via, Scott Gibson, and unsigned unsigned if you're listening please write it and let us know we'd love to have you on the show as with everybody the back game page starts off with a message from paul levitz and he says before we begin the letter section we feel obligated to point out that you're reading a slightly thinner detective comics than previously at least in terms of story pages after holding the value line on dollar comics for two and a half years almost a record in these inflationary times we've had to bow to cost pressures and trim our page count but even so we're giving you the value of three comics for the price of two and a half and our promise that this will spur us on to even better efforts. Paul Levitz. I think we kind of said this before. I wish at some point they just would have rebranded dollar comics as dynamic comics or, you know, something like that. So they could still keep the banner, just charge whatever, a dollar or two dollars. That way you would still have an anthology. But that was not to be. There are just a few things that I want to point out. Not a lot. Mostly things that agree with what I feel. 
<laughs> Mark Ryan says the demon tale by Len Wein and Steve Ditko reminded me of those great Stan Lee and Steve Ditko Doctor Strange stories from the early 60s which we constantly said Steve's art style is as visible to a comic fan as Batman's ears even if they're not under a mask a full face mask <laughs> Len Wein produced an excellent script whose dialogue was real and not flowery the amount of magic makes me question if this series might be better off in Unexpected with possibly the Swamp Thing or Challengers of the Unknown. I hope the demon moves over to Unexpected and Man Bat returns to this book. Mark, that's why I'm reading your comment in my... <laughs> so there's only two more. The next one is from Edward B. Via. This was my favorite one, Ed Via's. Detective Comics has been something of a mixed bag since it merged with Batman Family. And Tech 483 was certainly no exception. On tap this issue were The Curse of Crime Alley, a Denny O'Neill masterpiece. Gotham's Great Kangaroo Race, a Denny O'Neill mistake. <laughs> <laughs> that was the line I picked too. I love it. <laughs> and then the last one I'll point out is Scott Gibson. I'll repeat my conviction that there is no reason to feature two Batman stories per issue of Detective Comics. The character makes enough appearances elsewhere. Better you should utilize the extra pages for some other DC hero who has no regular birth. Black Orchid, maybe? Elongated Man, Plastic Man, Rose and Thorn. I agree. I would rather see a hero I didn't like than a second Batman story. Listen, they had reason. One Batman story per issue, that's fine. Now, the next one, I also have to do disclaimer. Bat Cousins, you know I love my Twinkies ads. I have absolutely love them but wonder woman saves the astronauts is i guess we'll say bonkers which i think <laughs> is a, which i think is a generous term so there's a couple of astronauts up in space they've lost radio control rocks and dust are wiping out the screen they can't locate the earth wonder woman decides to fly up in her invisible plane and drop some hostess fruit pies as i don't want to say a beacon but as a path back to earth now Dan, you were just talking about the whatever two hundred and fifty-five thousand pieces of gum well apparently that's how many fruit pies it would take <laughs> to get from space back to earth it just dawns me literally the second all of these fruit pies are they still just spinning around in space because like, <laughs> they're they probably pull, still there they're frozen they they're probably still good. Yeah, yeah now i do love my hostess ads and i do love this one but man this one is it's literally out there a couple more at the centerfold of the book right after the human target story there's a really neat full page ad for action comics 500 with the cover in the middle with tons of copy all around it the biggest blockbuster to hit comics since action comics number one and etc cetera, etc cetera. that's just a historical note of course and then the last ad we'll talk about is a half page ad so the top part huge font says comic strips and it's for Slim Jim brand beef jerky. The next time you sit down to a stack of comic books, sit down with a Slim Jim meat snack. Eh, Slim Jims were okay. That would get them maybe like once a year. I never really, did you like Slim Jims? Have you ever attempted to eat one? Years ago. Well, yeah. It's like eating like leather, right? Except with goo in the center. Some of them were flat, but then some of them were rolled like in a stick. Yes. And I think the stick ones were a little bit easier to eat. They seemed a little bit more flavorful. That is Jack davis i believe that's what i was just gonna say that's the good thing about this there's three kids and it's definitely jack davis from mad magazine yeah his artwork i almost think it should be switched i think the kids should be the main image and then a little picture of the slim jims down in the corner underneath that ad is a half page ad and it is fun to use superheroes glue stick 
and that's S-T-I-C, exclamation point. And these almost look like lip balm. So I wonder if any stupid little kid, you know how like we don't have lawn darts anymore because of stupid little kids. I wonder if stupid little kids glued their lips together. (laughs) Just ate the whole thing. But you have Superman, Wonder Woman. All four of these are their very traditional merchandising poses. Superman, Wonder Woman, Spider-Man, and Hulk. Now the unfortunate thing is, I'm sure it was trademarked, but it would be so much cooler if they could have called this super glue. Oh, yeah, they yeah. couldn't, I'm sure, because that was owned it's by not super glue, yeah. Yeah, whoever makes super glue. Let's move on to our fourth story starring Alfred returns to the pages of Detective Comics slash Batman Family. This is called The Hospitable Hostage, and it is a seven-pager written by our bat cousin, Bob Rosakis, with art by George Tuska and Bob Smith. Our favorite gentleman's gentleman, Alfred Pennyworth, has just returned from grocery shopping. He stands waiting for the lift in the Wayne Foundation building, whilst admiring the new addition to his stamp collection. The lift arrives, but suddenly Alfred is accosted by three hooligans who force their way up to the penthouse. Master Bruce is not in residence at this time, Alfred informs them, so they decide to wait for Bruce so he can turn over all his big bucks to them. Alfred fears that Bruce will appear in the penthouse as Batman, apparently coming down the chimney like Santa Claus, so he tries (laughs) to devise ways to get the ruffians to leave. He makes them tea to get their fingerprints and even opens the safe for them. When they are disappointed that Bruce doesn't have jewels or gold ingots in the safe, He even offers his stamp collection to them as valuables. They decide to wait anyway. But when they ask Alfred where Bruce is, Alfred answers truthfully that he's probably hanging out with Commissioner Gordon at this time. This freaks them out a bit for some reason, so they decide to leave. Alfred jams the elevator so he can calmly wait for Bruce to come home and take care of them like a proper butler. The end. (laughs) Dan, what'd you think of this little Alfred story? I thought it was unusual. I mean, that you have one of the richest men in the world, and he doesn't live in a doorman building. (laughs) Basically, Alfred comes in and three guys can get right in the elevator, right behind him. It's not even a private elevator, right? It just goes straight up. I think that you're Batman and you're worth a billion or two dollars. You have some level of security in the lobby, but that's beside the point. First off, George Tuss I like because again, Marvel Boy, mm-hmm. my Iron Man days. I don't know if you guys dislike George Tuska before I go there. Well, this is for my parents, but yeah. I liked him and I liked uh, when you're when it's imprinted upon you as a child what it should look like. Mm-hmm. That's what you like because mm-hmm. that's what happened with uh, Tuska and myself with mm-hmm. uh, Iron Man, like Herb Trimps Hulk. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, I'm not that familiar with Bruce Wayne's penthouse. Mm-hmm. I I was Wayne Manor mm-hmm. and I, I didn't know this. You weren't reading Batman in, in the 70s. In, in the yeah. time when mm-hmm. I knew he had this penthouse downtown and mm-hmm. I, but I'm not that familiar. Is there, does he come down the, the secret ch- elevator and it goes to the, this, Wait, this image of him top come- and and then he gets in the chimney and comes down. Well, I don't recall the chimney thing, Sean. I don't know if you do. It is generally an elevator takes him down below because there's a mini back cave below the building. Oh. And then the car, because uh-huh. if you go back to that treasury comic, there's a map of it all. And there's a schematic and it shows it goes down. There's a little back cave down okay. there. And he exits in the Batmobile out of some abandoned building a few blocks away. Okay. I like the story. I mean, it's kind of cute. It's cute. Exactly. I mean, he, he basically stalls them and locks them in an elevator until Batman comes to get right, them. So right. it's it's cool. Just a lot of stuff I didn't know about that yeah. era. So yeah. it was interesting. 
But the Baxter building has defense mechanisms yeah. built into it. This yeah. is not, uh, not as defense oriented as the Baxter <laughs> building. Even early on, they had to use their belt radio at, at the <laughs> elevator. Right, to open up the open elevator. elevator, right? But there have been lots of people invading the Baxter oh, building over oh, the years. Yeah. So they don't, their security isn't, isn't that difficult to get through. <laughs> Sean, how about you? I like this a lot. I think this is a fantastic showcase for Alfred. You see him thinking, oh, I'm going to hand this guy this pot so that we're going to get his fingerprints yeah i'm gonna pay attention to their names i love that it shows him thinking he's protecting bruce no it is dumb to come down the chimney i guess you figure no one's gonna be in your living room <laughs> i absolutely love that the only flaw i guess maybe is does alfred really think this whatever he gives like, stamps that's gonna be enough to stop them so that part i'm not too too keen but it shows he's thinking of how to foil them or stop them and then Ultimately, he does defeat them because once they get on the elevator, he knows he can just lock the elevator. <laughs> I, love that. I love that. Right. I love that part. The only maybe I wouldn't have mind him punching someone a little yeah, bit. Doing know, like, a little punch like this. Little, like, yeah, I don't know how to describe this. Your, that your was a Michael is, Golden punch. Yeah. Yeah. Your fist is on top and you're almost making like a swan. I love it when he punches like that. I don't remember, but I think I've read a Golden Age story or something in the past where Alfred actually has a stamp collection. So I think that was some kind of a callback from Bob Rizakis here. I don't know if any of our bat cousins know if I'm making that up or what. I love how he tries to outsmart him and finally does. Again, I came in and felt like George Tusco was much older. I'm not a huge fan, but I think Alfred looks great. I like the look of the guys that definitely look like thugs without too many brains. I was going to say, if you look at story page two... The second panel, you see all four of the main characters. They each have a different look. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, I think that's great. Clearly skilled and knew what he was doing. The storytelling yeah. is excellent. You know what's going on. It's not unusual. It's all squares. There's no fancy panel layouts or anything, but that's okay. Overall, I like it. And we get another use for that Alfred logo. I better point that out before <laughs> Martin does. The logo that we did see in that team up he had with Commissioner Gordon. I think that's the yeah. same logo they used again. That's really all I had to say about Alfred. Cute yeah, I, I like the story a lot. And I, I wish we would have had more Alfred stories. Okay, before we leave this story, I want to talk a little bit about George Tuska in our Bat Family History segment. So George Tuska was born in 1916 in Hartford, Connecticut. He was the youngest of three children of Russian immigrants, Harry and Anna Tuska. Harry was a foreman in a Hartford Auto Tire Company. He died when George was 14. So then Anna opened a restaurant in Patterson, New Jersey, where she had relatives and later remarried. And at 17, he moved to New York City, rooming with his cousin Annie, and a year later started taking courses at the National Academy of Design. At at some point, he took his first job in art, designing women's costume jewelry. Oh. Tuska then began working for comic book packager Eisner and Iger, one of a handful of companies at the time that supplied comics on demand for publishers entering this new medium. 1938, he became an assistant on Scorchy Smith comic strip, oh. and his first known published comic book work was in Fox Comics Mystery Men Comics Number 1, covered in August 1939. Tuska later recalled, quote, I went to art school at the same time I was doing costume jewelry design. I put in an application with a professional agency in New York City. I told them I could do cartooning, drawing. A week later, I got a call from Eisner Iger asking me to submit some samples. Eisner told him, so this is Will Eisner, uh, that's pretty good, but we don't want to do that cartoon stud. He showed me a comic book and said, this is what we want. He had never seen a comic book before, so that's kind of neat. I went home and I made a page, a whole story in one page. When I brought it back, he bought it for five bucks. He said, we'd like to have you work for us. That's how I got started. I gave up school. I made 10 bucks per week. I worked alongside of Bob Powell, Lou Fine, and Mike Sikowski. Company co-founder Will Eisner recalled, It was a friendly shop, and I guess I was the same age as the youngest guys there. 
We all got along. The only ones who ever got into a hassle were George Tuska and Bob Powell. Powell was kind of a wise guy and made remarks about other people in the shop. One day, George had enough of it, got up and punched out Bob Powell. So <laughs> <laughs> in the workplace. So by the, the early 1940s, despite apparently thinking comics were a fad and would last only a few years, he was doing extensive work for Fiction House, including Fight Comics, Ranger Comics, and Wing Comics. And he also worked for Harvey Comics. He did Speed Comics, all kinds of stuff. He later also returned to Eisner to work on some Spirit and Uncle Sam stories. At this point, Tusco was drafted in the Army and was stationed in Columbia, South Carolina, where he worked in headquarters drawing artillery. He was honorably discharged as a private first class after a year for reasons that the artist did not specify. So he didn't stay in the whole war, which is a little unusual. Don't know why. As we know, the popularity of superheroes began to dwindle post-war. He would make a name for himself as one of the genre's top comic artists. After starting with short backup features and spot illustrations for tech stories, Tusco was drawing Crime Does Not Pay at March 1947. 1949, he began his long association with Timely Atlas and contributed to a great number of their crime titles, but he also did mystery and war stories. He was a regular on Western titles like Black Rider, Gunsmoke, Western Kid Colt, Outlaw, Texas Kid, and the Two-Gun Kid until 1957. Simultaneously, Tusco was also working on the science fiction comic strip Buck Rogers, drawing both the Daily and Sunday strip from April 1959 to 1965. Near the cancellation of the Daily Buck Rogers script, Tuska again found a freelance home that was by now Marvel Comics. I called Stan up and he said, come on up. His first Marvel story was a Tales of the Watcher feature in Tales of Suspense number 58 from November 1964. Included a special introduction by Lee, hailing the return of this golden age great. Tuska became a Marvel mainstay, penciling and occasionally inking other artists on series as diverse as Ghost Rider, Submariner, and the X-Men. His signature series, as we know, became Iron Man, on which he enjoyed a nearly 10-year, only occasionally interrupted run from issue 5 in 1968 to 106 in 1978. He drew the first issue of Luke Cage, Hero for Hire, in 1972, and Shanna the She-Devil, and was one of the artists on the movie tie-in series Planet of the Apes. Due to Marvel not having the likeness rights for Charlton Heston, one of the lawyers at 20th Century Fox insisted that Tusk could change some of his art there are conflicting opinions about the quality of Tuska's art. For example, the AV Club of the Insert of the Onion, shortly before Tuska's death in 2009, wrote, quote, Tuska was perfectly competent and his art for titles like Iron Man and Incredible Hulk is decent, though unspectacular. But his drawing was so flavorless that he became the king of the fill-in issue, hopping in to provide bland, forgettable work whenever someone else blew a deadline. Ooh. So by this time, his health had also become a handicap. Jim Shooter recalled that, quote, Tuska was at the end of his brilliant career. He was mostly deaf, communication was difficult, and though he showed occasional flashes of the chops that made him a big artist in his day, I don't think his work at this time was any near near his best. On the other hand, you got John Romita found Tuska so versatile, he could do everything. When Stan knew that a guy could do anything, he used him in every possible conceivable way. George was a hell of an artist and very versatile and very fast. He was very much in demand. And then Tom Sturgeon, comics historian, wrote, quote, his layouts were certainly more imaginative than the standard at the time, and the way in which characters like Luke Cage held a lot of their strength in their shoulders and punched from their legs up through their torsos betrayed his knowledge of strength and fitness. His signature flourish may have been characters in arrested motion, coiled in preparation for violence, like so many pulp heroes of an earlier generation, legs splayed in the form of a near base ready for what might come next. Tuska cemented his reputation as one of the more iconic artists in the 1970s, two generations after entering 
comics. By 1978, though, Tuska was out at Marvel and moved to DC, where we see him now. He drew some characters including Superman, Superboy, Challengers of the Unknown, and World's Finest, including the dollar comic anniversary issue number 250, The Reality War. We talked about that during the Bat timeline a few months ago. He had a four-year run drawing the world's greatest superhero comic strip from 1978-1982, inked by Vince Coletta, written by, I think, Martin Pasco. And then Tuska retired from active comics work in the 1980s, but stayed active doing commissions up until several weeks of his passing in 2009. According to Mike's Amazing World, he had 600 story credits, over 6,500 pages, which of course does not include his comic strip work. Personally, I don't care very much for his work, but similar to when I did the bio on Don Heck, it is great to remind ourselves that these artists were people first, men who had jobs. They had to get the book out on time. They were under a lot of deadline pressures. They had a huge part to play in the history of these characters and the comics medium that we all love. I enjoy learning about their lives. So thanks again for letting me talk about, in this case, George Tuska. To double check i think he has credits on the superman aquaman adventure hour the television show yeah i'm almost positive he's credited and i don't know if they took some Maybe. of like his dc and they took some of his art and over it or something that's why i especially wanted to listen to this because i wanted to see if you found anything and it's a vague memory but i think i remember seeing his name Could in be. credits i didn't come upon it in my research but there's no reason i'll check my dvd fat listeners if you have any thoughts on that let us know all right, now we are going to go on to the fifth story, and that fifth story is Fear Times Four, starring Robin. It is 12 pages, written by Jack C. Harris, penciled by Kurt Schaffenberger, inked by Jack Abel, and it was later reprinted in Robin, the Bronze Age Omnibus hardcover from 2020. Robin in Fear Times Four. Robin is out investigating some possible frat hazing initiation violations when he discovers a man buried alive in a coffin. In another instance of the Hudson University Security Department showing off their crack evidence-gathering <laughs> skills, they have overlooked three pieces of straw, which of course leads to a Scarecrow origin recap. We then see the real deal, threatening a payment of cold hard cash from Carson Crispin, who has a fear of the cold. The next day, Crispin shows up at the Security Department with Mr. Maxwell and Mr. Reynard to tell Chief McDonald that the three of them are being threatened by the Scarecrow, as was Mr. Harmon, the man in the coffin, using their phobias against them, being buried alive, extreme cold, claustrophobia, and autophobia, being alone. Robin tails Mr. Maxwell, who falls prey to the Scarecrow by being locked in his bedroom. Unfortunately, Robin is unable to deal with the Scarecrow because he has to help Mr. Maxwell, who is freaking out. And then Robin does a whole bunch of detective working that honestly... I really don't understand, so I hope that Cousin Paul can once again explain it to me. Which leads Robin to deduce that Mr. Reynard is really the Scarecrow, because he was in the building alone, despite claiming to suffer from autophobia. I do understand that part. What did you guys think about it? Again, I have some questions for you. On the logo, it says Robin the Chain Wonder. He's in college at this point right? Yes. At what point does he become 20? Uh, at the new there, Teen Titans. At the yeah. new, yeah, well, that says that's... teen in it too. Oh, we yeah, have yep. to just, Fair enough. Just, we, we have to go, go with it. I don't know technically if he ever became the man wonder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that has a whole different illusion. You're telling me. I think, first off, the Scarecrow is one of my favorite characters. So he's, yeah. not, he's not used very often. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he's yeah. not overused. Some of the scenes from Schaffenberg seem almost like they were lifted to me. Oh, really? 
seem, I don't know where, when he's on page six, leaning back and stuff, it almost seems like I've seen those before. At any rate, maybe it's just yeah, my imagination. It, look, it looks like a cover post. It looks iconic. Yeah, it yeah. does look good. I think it's good. I think Schaffenberger's art's very good in it. I think he draws a good Superboy and a good Robin. Yeah. He's kind of stiff when he's not dealing with the superheroes in the scene, but I think the pacing is good. It's 13 pages. It could be 20. Be interesting. It's definitely got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, a lot of stuff going so on. I liked it. I liked the three different things. and We learned about all kinds of different fears. Yes, uh, Automania, which I'd never he heard of that one. I like the artwork, especially. It's very clean uh, without being cartoony, which sometimes Schaffenberger can be kind of cartoony. Yeah. Yeah, and I've talked about Chris Schaffenberger, and I like various parts of it, but his Robin, to me, looks too young. If he's mm. 19, like he's supposed to be. I want to call out, you look on page 8, the close-up of and when he's jumping out of the desk chair mm -hmm. that looks more like an 18 19 year old to me there like yeah, he yeah. looks more realistic there so I, I have to give him credit when it does look better in my opinion i actually like the art in this one better than the last couple outings for robin i too like the scarecrow i always think he's cool once again this is the issue of the very complicated plots it seems very complicated to me but you know Good. what's that sean i said Good. I'm glad it's not yeah, me. No, it's very complicated. There's some funny things. Once again, the police work, but the chief is, I mean, Jack C. Harris has made Chief McDonald into a laughingstock of a police yeah. officer. You've got this big explosion. Robin takes chemicals from his utility belt, blows the dirt off. That's, yeah. And then there's a wood <laughs> coffin underneath, which is undamaged. So if you heard the noises coming out of the mound, when you get a shovel. Yeah, yeah. He knows it's a human there. If I was, oh my gosh, I think there's somebody buried in there. I wouldn't mix two chemicals and blow it up. You're, he's <laughs> yeah. lucky he's in a coffin. Otherwise, he would have been blown up with it. Right? right. That part mystified me a little bit. On this page, page three, here Robin looks like a kid. He looks very young when he's holding up the three pieces of straw. Yeah, yeah. I don't have a whole lot to say other than I do like this guy's bedroom on page six. Yeah, I know. <laughs> He's got his canopy bed in the yeah. middle of the room, like a stage. And there's very little other furniture all around the room. <laughs> Who furnishes their room like that? I don't know. And I understand he suffers from claustrophobia, but even with those windows coming down, it still looks like a very spacious room. It is Gotham City real estate, as Brett <laughs> would tell you. So there's a bunch of things about this story. First of all, I think Scarecrow is a fantastic villain. Talk about sticking to your theme. You get Scarecrow from the jump. And it just dawns on me now, so many of these stories were 12 pages, which is kind of okay, or six or eight pages, which isn't. So if you have to introduce a new villain in a six to eight page story, that takes up a lot of real estate. Why didn't they use a lot of these villains that you already, Poison Ivy or Catwoman or Mr. Freeze or whoever, you know what they're about, although it is 12 pages and we even get a recap of his origin, but you can ignore all of the backstory to build up this villain's motive that takes up space. I wish they would have used major villains more throughout the entire run of Batman Family and Detective. Yeah. Coming up, we get more of the assassin stuff and Maxi Zeus, and I guess we get the Riddler, but not, that's about it, I think. Yeah. Now, I will say, all throughout this story, I thought for sure... The Scarecrow wasn't going to be the real Scarecrow because he's wearing white tennis shoes all the way through the story. So I thought for sure that was going to be the clue that it wasn't the real Scarecrow because he had these sneakers on. What was that? Why was he wearing sneakers? I noticed that too. Just... I don't understand that at all. Because they're definitely prominent in comic book ways they do it. They make yeah. it so you could spot them. 
Right, yeah. I thought for sure it was going to be like revealed that it wasn't the Scarecrow at all. It was someone posing as him. You do know that Reynard is yeah. some kind of bird. Yeah. So I guess that's why they get the crow. That's how he knows it. But uh-huh. I think it's a nice twist that the guy was trying to continue Jonathan Crane's experiments. I thought that was interesting. Somebody else had an academic interest in fear the way that Crane does. I thought that was interesting. But my question about that is him shooting a gun off in class is what got him... In trouble. Yeah, so why would you do it again? Or is it just because now it's later? Or I think you're supposed to think that he is the Scarecrow because he did that, but he was just trying to duplicate it. I don't know. But I will say, even with my quote-unquote negative stuff, I did like the story. I love Schaffenberger art. All right, time to move on. Let's go dancing. In this segment, we'll take a trip to Gabriel's Horn, the hip-hopping hangout for the Teen Titans in the 1970s. We'll talk about the most 1970 moments in this issue for many of the stories. So, guys, I didn't have a ton, but what did you have in this issue? Dan, do you have any you want to talk no, about? No, I couldn't spot any. No. Okay. All right. All right. Sean, what do you have? In the first story, just two things, and they're not really specifically yeah. 70s. The pipe smoking, and Christopher Chance does it as well. Now, obviously, people still smoke a pipe. Nowhere yeah. near as much as what they did back then. A standard one. The laundromat is yeah. 10 cents, 25 yeah. cents. 25 cents in 1979 is a dollar nine in 2023 <laughs> granted it's been years since i've had to use a laundromat but i can't help but think it's more than a dollar nine for a Probably. load of laundry there's also the dial phone in that guy's apartment that we talked about oh Rotary. yeah yeah Rotary phone, yeah and uh human target i had originally the stairs from the plane but there are planes that still have that i think that's iffy because we can't tell if this is a commercial flight because a private jet i think would still have the plane stairs i think so yeah once again christopher chance's outfit his white leisure suit is just spectacular 70s staying alive kind of thing i don't know about the diving equipment they have pretty advanced diving equipment they got radios they're talking to each other the masks are full face so we can see their face i don't know how realistic that was i don't know if any of our bat listeners are diving aficionados but if anyone can comment on the equipment we'd love to hear it my guess is kind of like with almost any tech it's probably light lighter or smaller now maybe although you have to have an air tank and that has to be a certain amount of space i would think you would think and batgirl killer moth's big computer panel yeah. we talked about that <laughs> the kid hitchhiking yes <laughs> i think that's probably a big one in the hotel he has a bellboy outfit okay I think possibly the biggest one of the entire issue, Batgirl story page two, where the fourth panel on her desk, she has the tri-pen holder. Oh. <laughs> and I, I don't know that you'd really see that on a business office desk anymore. That's cute. On you know, page seven, I think it probably is true all the time, but the cop car has got the little little ball on the top of it now. Oh, yeah. It's not the, we're Kojak. Oh, yeah, because now it's all the way across. Yeah, the top of the yeah that's a very good one. That's a great one, yeah. And then in Alfred, the only one I had here was that got physical bearer bonds and stock certificates in the safe. You wouldn't have that today. Page four, you have Alfred handing him, he's using the big Proctor Silex coffee <laughs> urn, which they don't sell anymore. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I think they still... They have, might. They might. Yeah, I think they still have something... I think now it's plastic, but That's yeah, I, I kind of think they have something... They might. 
But yeah, I didn't really have a lot. Actually, in the next two, I didn't really have a lot from either and one. And then on uh, Robin, I have page seven. They've got another dial phone there, okay, yeah. Robin. And then on page nine, the giant file room. Yeah, so it wouldn't be file. Oh, yeah. A lot of file yeah. cabinets there. That's a very good one, yeah. yeah. And that's really it. So not a ton of Gabriel's horn this issue. We're getting the, closer and closer to 1980. The bedroom furniture, I noticed. Yeah. <laughs> the bedroom furniture, which Kurt Schaffenberger used from, <laughs> from the 19th in the Superboy you know, it didn't matter. <laughs> that's that's Clark Kent's childhood's okay. furniture, I think. <laughs> he got it on eBay from Smallville. It's colonial, <laughs> colonial revival. They think that's cool. All right. Uh, that wraps it up for this issue. We want to thank our special guest, Dan Doherty, for stopping by the reunion this month. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. It was great having you. Now we're going to play a podcast promo. And when we return, we will read and respond to your listener feedback. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. Because you demanded it. It's Treasury Cast, a podcast devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. DC, Marvel, Archie, IDW, and more, bigger than life. It's the Treasury Cast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Welcome back. Now we will read and respond to your listener feedback for episode 485, The Vengeance Val, with our special guest, Ward Hill Terry. First up, we have bat cousin Rob McCarthy, who fills us in that a numbers racket is betting on numbers in the newspaper, any number, temperature, Dow Jones, etc. There are a lot of numbers and you only pay if it's exact, so you can make a lot. Martin Gray, who posed the question, says, thanks, Rob, and we do too. Moving on, Bat Cousin Martin Menza was not happy. He said, I too felt the death of Batwoman in this issue was cheaply done. She deserved more, much more, after Bob Rosakis had brought her out of obscurity just a few years earlier. That definitely left a bad taste in my mouth regarding this issue. Brian Shufo replied, Kathy Kane was killed off. That's so terrible. I had always assumed she disappeared in the crisis on infinite earths. And Bucky749 concurs, I think it would be better if she had. And then we got a big food update from Bucky749, as well as his secret identity, Rocky Starwind. Check out the comments for their menus. Bat cousin Liz Ann Oswald says, impressive podcast, most impressive. Cool drawing of Sean on the cover. <laughs> so Sean is now seen as Earth 7-Eleven's bats. <laughs> Lizanne then goes on to fan cast members of the FNW network as the Justice League. Lizanne then points out that the Batman story is legendary since the Grant Morrison Bat God years. People would throw it up on message boards since it had Bronze Tiger owning bats. But she adds that she never liked Bronze Tiger's mask. Sorry Kathy died in this issue. As a Helena Wayne fan, I can feel your pain. As for Next of Kin, I think Flamebird is her only known Next of Kin. Can't wait to hear the next podcast. Next up, we have noted film reviewer and podcaster Rob Kelly of the recently completed For All Mankind. Hey guys, I loved all the info on Kurt Schaffenberger. Thanks, Rob. Tricking the Nazis with secret codes? What a badass! I can just picture Kurt Schaffenberger slaving away at his drawing board, 
rendering page after page of Lois pretending to be a mermaid or something to trick Superman into marrying her while daydreaming of the days when he thwarted actual Nazis. Plus, from his self-portrait, he was one dapper fellow. And Sean, in answer to your question, yes, the Buck Rogers book was actually treasury size. We covered it on the show. Being a gold key comic, it is dull <laughs> as dishwater. And it was one of those weird deals where Marvel put their logo on the cover, but Gold Key did the interior. Oh, someone got tomahawked. I was impressed that Terry could record a whole podcast considering how tight he had his cranky pants cinched. <laughs> Next up, Bat Cousin, past and future guest, podcasting all-star Chris Franklin says, Great show, guys. I have tons of respect for Denny O'Neill and his contributions to comics. Having said that, the death of Kathy Kane is really a sore point for me. Not only because she was killed, and not because she was killed in such an ignominious fashion, but because she was killed only to motivate Batman in this one story. That's what we now call fridging, thanks to Gail Simone. Only Alan Brenner really addressed how Kathy's death made Batman feel when he came face to face with her Earth 2 doppelganger in the classic Brave and the Bold 192, Chris's favorite comic of all time. I knew he was going to mention that comic. Denny seemed to be rather flippant with concepts he deemed silly. Just look at how he handled the denouement of the Super Sons in World's Finest number 263 a few months after this issue. Brutal. <laughs> Denny definitely didn't seem to have a ton of regard for what comics fans deemed sacred. I wouldn't call the Super Sons sacred, but you get my point. He revealed as much when he was gobsmacked by the reaction to the death of Robin, Jason Todd, in the Death in the Family storyline stunt he orchestrated. It forced him to reevaluate and change his attitude toward these fictional characters and how much they meant to a larger number of people. Well said, Chris. Thanks a lot. Next up, Bat Nephew Isamu comes by the reunion to visit his doddering Bat Uncles. <laughs> Sorry, Uncle Paul. My Google Foo was about effective as Kirk Foo performed by Egg Foo when it came to finding <laughs> the Kurt Schaffenberger war poster. I also looked at a few war propaganda poster books in the library and the only source soldier wasting food poster in them was a caricature of Hideki Tojo thanking those soldiers. I did find two spectral Hitler posters, one that encouraged carpooling to save fuel and one on evacuating British children. I suspect the art has been lost to time. One would think it would have been featured in the section of Hero Gets Girl that mentioned the poster instead of a different and more generic one if the art was available. I do hope I am wrong. I would like to see it. Hey, thanks for trying, Isamu. I don't feel so bad now not being able to find it. And going to the physical library while a great thing, as Uncle Sean would attest, is above and beyond the Call of Duty. So thanks for trying. <laughs> However, he goes on to say, Uncle Sean, I do recall an instance of the Flash holding his yellow boots so he can stand in Green Lantern's powering bubble. It happened on page 14 of issue 131 of the Flash, Captives of the Cosmic Ray. I remember it because there was an editor's note pointing it out. This story was reprinted in one of the Flash and his friends' digests, which may be where you had first seen it. B-I-N-G-O. Bingo. You are exactly right, Isamu. That fantastic. And even connecting the digest. Yes, that is exactly where I saw it and how I remember it. Thank you so much. And then Isamu closes by posting the panels and questions. And it's terrific. You really should check it out on the website. Thanks so much, as always, Isamu. Bat DJ Matthew Davis says... Happy New Year, everyone. Hope everyone's wearing their finest three-piece suit. <laughs> this month, I brought some Whitman samplers to go with this issue's variety of stories. We have lighthearted adventure, sorcery horror, detective mystery, and political intrigue. First, martial arts action punctuated by tragedy. Batman, Empty Gardens by Elton John. 
I'm not sure that I know that one, but maybe if I heard it. There was a lot packed into this story. A longtime foe trying to gain control of a shadowy organization. Someone who is a near match for Batman and the martial arts that could either be a new foe or an ally. And sadly, the murder of an old friend. Rest in peace, Kathy Kane. It still feels like DC could have done much more with the character. Terry and I are on the same page. Batwoman deserved better. If anything, Batwoman's death should have been acknowledged in some way by Batgirl. They became friends in their recent team-ups, so some dialogue or text referencing her funeral would be nice. These days, we would have seen Kathy's funeral, Betty, the OG Batgirl, ready for revenge, and Batman and the rest of the Bat family talking her out of it. The Brave and the Bold 182 that included the Earth 2 Batwoman was a much better send-off. Yeah, that's really true, Matthew. And I don't know that I ever really connected that that's why it felt so empty, that it wasn't referenced. Like, Batgirl never talked about it, Robin never talked about it. Yeah, it did seem really yeah. empty and hot. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Robin's story. I Can't Drive 55 by Sammy Hagar, which I do know, I knew that, but only because Weekend at Bernie's didn't have any memorable songs. <laughs> Danny Hayes looks pretty good for a guy who died in a car crash the previous day <laughs> while going 90 miles per hour without a freaking seatbelt and got thrown from the car. <laughs> Demon. Snowblind by Styx. And he includes the lyrics, Mirror, Mirror, I Confess. However, I don't know that song. Jason Blood finally got changed out of his wrestling togs and got an ascot. Not sure if that's an upgrade. Well, I can tell you it's not because I'd rather have a wrestling dog. And then he goes on. It always seems like the neckwear for bad guys. Well, it's him and Fred from Scooby-Doo. <laughs> Where's an ascot all the time? It works on him. Batgirl, Land of Confusion by Genesis. I do know that song and I like it. Considering all the political scandals of the time, Watergate, Agnew, Abscam, I'm surprised there weren't more corrupt politician storylines at the time. I kind of understand, although at the time, I cared much more about supervillains. Right. Like I wanted supervillains and outfits and death traps. And it that was kind the of audience. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Man, Bat. Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins. Oh, I knew that one. <laughs> this quickie origin recap didn't seem as forced as some others. I'm surprised that Jason hadn't asked Kirk about becoming Man Bat before even taking him on as an associate. For a one-off failed hero, that's actually a pretty cool-looking suit. SST is an okay name. Concord would have been better, although copyright protected. Thanks, Matthew. Next up, past and future guest, our bat cousin Martin Gray says, Hello, I'm not coming to the barbecue this month. It's far too cold, but I will send a half-eaten giant bar of Toblerone leftovers from Christmas. Enjoy. <laughs> that is really one boring cover image. Even the fantastic white border box can't save it. I know Batman is a master of martial arts, but I get no kick from Bruce Wayne. I think that's a line, right, Sean? Yes, it is. Cole Porter. <laughs> <laughs> In the opening Batcave text page, I love how unimpressed Paul Levitt sounds when he says he's obligated to use stories inherited from previous editors, quote, if they met professional standards. <laughs> and this is the first time I've noticed that the bottom of the Batcave logo isn't a dripping cape. It's actually stalactites acting as the usual cape pointy bits. Any tailoring fans out there know the name? How clever. You know, Martin, I never actually noticed that. I went and looked at it and that's a great catch. Back to Martin. The opening story is one of my most hated in Batman history. If Denny didn't really want to use Kathy, then don't use her. If he wanted to kill her, give her a good, meaningful send-off and some reactions and tributes from her friends. The stupidest thing about the tale is Ra's al Ghul admitting he manipulated the assassins into murdering Kathy and then Batman saying, I'll nail them and then you. Seriously? He just leaves Ra's behind rather than punch slash arrest him, leaving Talia to come on and do her simpering useless bit. I can't stand Talia. Mine, better a snog with Talia than a kiss from a Ra's. I got that one too, Sean. <laughs> 
Interesting that there's a credit for some real-life Richard Dragon for martial arts advice. Don Newton's fight scene between Batman and Bronze Tiger looked great, but pretty generic. For some reason, it struck me that Batman's cape should really have been used against him by Ben. Usually this kind of thing doesn't bother me, but Ben should have grabbed it, twisted around Batman's neck, I don't know, something. Terry's analysis of Denny's Batman story in the context of the rest of the Batman universe was one of the best moments we've had on this always fine show. Finally, someone is unimpressed with Roz as me. Aside from those early gothic stories with Neil Adams, I've never been into Denny's Batman scripts. I just find Denny lame. Well, I don't feel strongly as you do, Martin, but I hear you. And this run of stories we're getting right now from Denny is not his strongest. I'll agree with that. Martin continues with, that Robin story was a surprise. A corpse of a teen <laughs> on page one. Even covered up, that feels a little strong. I like the twists and turns, but by the end, the student's definitely positively dead, which I'm pretty sure is a Monty Python reference. So Robin's Hudson University was located somewhere called New Carthage. I wonder if it's near New Athens, where Supergirl was a guidance counselor for a while. Now, I'm not sure if Dr. Ange listens to this, but I'm pretty sure New Athens was in Florida. That's what I thought, too. I'm almost positive. Wasn't that the experimental school? The experimental school. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think so, yeah. I don't think you boys mentioned this on the show, but I did laugh when the police chief on page five points to a pair of shoes and cries, voila, instant clue. <laughs> I reckon his mind is out of tune. Thank you for the feature on Kurt Schaffenberger. He's in my top three DC artists ever. His art just makes me smile. I like Abner Beckerman's look in The Demon. Purple suit, black shirt, white necktie and all. These are definite Silver Fox vibes. <laughs> Shame about the horrific Abe Lincoln facial hair. <laughs> anyway, the most stylish man in this issue is Jason Blood. With the cravat matching the edging of the shirt sleeves. I absolutely love Randu, Harry, and Miss Inflatable managing to move a light switch with their joint concentration. We need more of this kind of thing in DC Comics. <laughs> when did Kirk Langstrom find the time and money to study and pay for his private eye exams? That aside, this was the best story yet, from the very first panel of Daddy Bat feeding baby Rebecca to the sitcom ending. Jason isn't half lazy, though, refusing to get involved in a domestic case. That might be a reference to something, but out of half lazy, I don't know. Hmm. I generally enjoy the work of Don Heck and John Solardo separately, but together, yikes. Talk about murky. And come on, Barbara worries about the cost of her bat equipment, but by implication, has numerous outfits with matching hats that transform into her Batgirl suit, including this cute number straight out of the gold diggers of 1933. <laughs> I love that, Martin. I do not buy it. The only outfit that turns into the dominoed Daredevil's signature look comes with a blue beret and red skirt. <laughs> then again, maybe Bruce could copy the bit. He's got his top hat, his white tie. All he needs now is the Batgirl. I think I said it before, I love the show Gypsy, so thank you, Martin. Are three-piece suits really so rare in the U.S. today that they can be put forward as an example of this most 70s thing in this issue? I'd love to see a pic of Terry in his 70s number. <laughs> I bet he was solid gold. He's got the goods they'd stand when he walked through the neighborhoods. <laughs> I know that's a reference because gold, goods, walk through the neighborhoods, they rhyme, they match, but I don't know what that means. <laughs> Thanks, Martin. And finally, two-time past guest and friend of the network, Bat Cousin Brett Young, stops by the reunion. Hey, Bat Cousins, I brought... Ah, oh, forget it. I'll take Bat Cousin Ward Hill Terry's trifle instead. That's the best dessert known to man. <laughs> Terrific art on the first Batman story. Don Newton is killing it. Speaking of killing it, 
Not the best send-off for Kathy Kane. First, Batman finds her dead, quickly drops her to confront Roz, and then storms out. Uh, Bats, maybe collect her body or call someone or something instead of leaving her on the circus floor like an old box of popcorn. <laughs> to add further insult, Talia and her dad have a heart-to-art over Kathy's corpse like she's a throw rug. Denny O'Neill was clearly not a fan of Carney's. Batman memorizes every license plate he sees. Looks like the sensei's greatest weakness is his vanity plate. <laughs> I will say it's hard to take this League of Assassins too seriously when their hideout is in a parking garage. Not enough incense in Gotham to kill those fumes. And there are just random cars parked in their sparring area. I wouldn't want to be getting my AMC Hornet after work and find a couple <laughs> guys throwing stars wedged into the trunk. <laughs> I'll take my business elsewhere, Sensei, despite your reasonably good early bird special. <laughs> a nice weekend at Bernie's Robin story. Always fun to do silly capers with a corpse. I will say Danny's body was in remarkably good shape considering he was catapulted out of a convertible headfirst into a truck on the freeway. Say what you want about Danny's moral failings. He wasn't a bleeder. <laughs> the demon story wasn't great. I agree. It was probably an add-on. Kudos to Jason Blood's buddies. Floating and spinning in the air so well. I can't even get the merry-go-round at the kids at the park without wanting to barf. Oh boy, the Batgirl story. Jeez, more strange things afoot in parking garages. Women changing under cars and popping tricked-out motorcycles out of car trunks. What's the deal with parking in the DC Universe? And sorry about the bike baths, but irreplaceable? It's a Vespa with a giant flat red Batgirl symbol on it. Save a couple Congress checks and before you know it, will be scooting around at a brand new ride like it's a Roman holiday. The safe in Barbara's apartment is probably the most likely feature of the DC Universe real estate we've seen in this series. <laughs> I've lived in DC apartments slash homes that have all sorts of weird nooks and side storage areas. Half the time, the renters didn't even know it was there, so I'm going to let this one slide. Don Newton nails it again on the Man Bat story. As for a baby being bottle-fed by a monster at 3 a.m., as a father of three, I can tell you, I looked a lot scarier during some of those late-night feeds. <laughs> the Kurt Schaffenberger Bat Family History Lesson was awesome. My favorite so far. Thanks, Brett. And we all learned a great diet tip. If you're eating too much, remember, that's what Hitler would want. Okay, gotta go. Great Aunt Edna wandered into a nearby parking garage and got stabbed by a random katana sword. What a mess. <laughs> P.S. I stand by my bat mic comments, Sean. <laughs> Thanks, Brett, as always. Now, we're going to acknowledge our Bat family members who shared our podcast on social media. We appreciate the support from our online community. Thanks to Facebook, we had mentions and forwards from John Hyjet, Scott Rowland, Don Lindbergh, Tim Price, Tim Pinsonal, The Pulp to Pixel Media, Doug Game Master, Herschel Mimas, Chris Franklin, Dan Jackson, Brett Young, Alistair James Dunbar, James Young, Codex Omniversa, Roger Preeb, Mike Jamison, Terry O'Malley, Paul Wildenberger, Mike Thomas, Clinton Robinson, and on the Twitter side of the street, Tim Price, the pod crasher, Steve Whitbread, Jim Ball, Bill, aka the Bat Pod, Brian Shufo, Dr. Pop Culture, Rodney Trainum, Codex Omniversa, and Ward Hill Terry. And also, Paul posted this super, super cool photo of when he went to the Isle of a Thousand Thrills with his family, <laughs> and they're all decked out in their Batman Family Reunion t-shirts. <laughs> Although it's a little bit of a bittersweet picture because if you guys didn't get your Batman Family Reunion shirts, well, unfortunately you can't because they were pulled. We were afraid that that might happen, and it did happen, so if you have your shirts you have you have collector's items we'll see. <laughs>
Now, before we sign off, as most of our listeners know, running the Fire and Water Podcast Network has gotten more costly over the years as more and more shows were added. So if you are enjoying what you hear on this show or any of the other shows, please consider becoming a patron. At certain levels, you can get a call out on the show of your choice. And our special thanks go out to Bat Cousin and future guest Brian Shufo, who was asked to be named on Batman Family Reunion. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks Thank you, Brian. And remember, we are not all Bruce Wayne, but any small amount that you can give helps defray the cost. And we promise that none of the monies donated will go towards the purchase of a remote radio control device for a car or for some ascots. <laughs> to find out how, go to patreon.com slash podcasts. And thanks. That'll do it for the feedback section and for episode 486. We want to thank our special guest, Dan Doherty, for appearing on this episode. I think he did pretty well for his first podcast. Oh, yeah. And thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll join us next month as Batman once again faces the League of Assassins, and we also get stories of Roy Raymond TV detective and the Odd Man. <laughs> <laughs>